Hello, welcome to Glittership episode 58 for August 25th, 2018. This is your host, Keffi, and I'm super excited to be sharing this story with you. Our episode today is a reprint in the city of Kites and Crows by Megan Arkenberg, read by A.J. Fitzwater. Megan Arkenberg's work has appeared in over 50 magazines and anthologies, including Lightspeed, Asimov's, Shimmer, and Ellen Datlow's Best Horror of the Year. She has edited the fantasy easing Mirror Dance since 2008 and was recently the nonfiction editor for Queers Destroy Horror, a special issue of Nightmare Magazine. She currently lives in Northern California, where she is pursuing a PhD in English literature. Visit her online at www.meganarkenberg.com. A.J. Fitzwater is a dragon wearing a human meat suit from Christchurch, New Zealand. A graduate of Clarion 2014, she's had stories published in Shimmer Magazine, Andromeda Spaceways Magazine, and in Paper Road Press's At the Edge Anthology. She also has stories coming soon at Kaleidotrope and Podcastle. As a narrator, her voice has been heard across the Escape Artists Network on Redstone SF and Innerzone. She tweets under her pen name as at AJ Fitzwater. Content warning for descriptions of police violence and suicide. In the City of Kites and Crows by Megan Arkenberg. When you breathe deeply, really push the air from your lungs and let the cold valley wind fill you again. You can smell the city's ghosts. They smell like burning. Not like fire, but like everything that comes with it. Smoke, scorched hair, wet carbon, ash. This is a city that burns spasmodically. A city of gas lines and rail cars, coal dust and arson. A city with wooden roofs and narrow alleys. A city that is always shivering. Forty or fifty years ago, this apartment building was the hotel where senators kept their mistresses and boy toys, all blue velvet and gilt. Then a fire gutted it. I tell this to Lissy, and she rubs at the burn scar at the back of her knee, at the tattoo that crawls up her thigh in a hatch of green and golden lines, like a map of a city or a circuit board in fragments. Lizzie just got out of federal prison for smashing the rear-view mirrors off a police car. She has new scars now, the white tracks of some riot officer's baton, one of which slices across her left nipple and makes her breast look punctured, deflated. She sits in her flannel bathrobe at the table in her living room, in the apartment that was a hotel room and still smells like the arsonist's match and she shakes her head with a slow, sad smile. Hithler Day, she says, as though my name were a dirge. How can you, of all people, believe in ghosts? Outside the bay window behind her, three stories below us, a crush of poster board and sweatshirted bodies is churning and chanting its way up Ninth Street, towards the west gate of the Senate. Lissy snaps photos on her phone. She edits an anti-government webzine, contributes information to two anti-senatorial projects that I know of, 
both documenting police brutality and violations of prisoners' rights, and surely several others that I don't. Her thick hair is unoiled and still damp from the shower, smelling of grass and wood dust, smelling of her. Everyone I'm fucking is trying to overthrow the government, I tell her. I'm spread out on her couch like the jammy sediment in the bottom of a wine glass, and I know that this observation, this trenchant process of the last 36 months, is the closest that I'll ever come to political analysis. Or to self-reflection. Lissy, who will not let me back into her bed until I'm sober, who still fucks me on the couch, does not look up from the photos of the protesters on her phone. Well, Hithliday, she says, half word, half sigh, why do you think that is? Some evenings, when I'm sober enough to pull on a pair of trousers and an old suit coat, tie my hair back and wash the traces of eyeliner from my cheeks, I take the train down to the university. It's quiet and damp so close to the river, the trees whispering to themselves in the fog and all the public spaces roped off with yellow lines of caution tape. If anyone were to ask me what I'm doing here tonight, anyone except for Lissy, who won't ask me, who never asks, I'd say I'd came for the lecture on the Nemesine project, an answer both innocuous and vaguely suspect. Really, I'm here to see Jessie. They check IDs at the door of the auditorium, I don't know if they are the Nemesine developers looking for allies, or a senatorial commission tallying enemies, or just the university, looking to cover its ass either way. Inside the dim room flickers with tablet and laptop screens as people pull up the app. Nemesine, Jeff, Nemesine, Jesse explained to me once as we lay on the floor of his bedroom, sipping coffee from wine glasses, is an augmented reality application. It checks your location with your device's GPS and overlays your screen with location-sensitive news. Censored news, he meant. Censored images, photographs you wouldn't see, stories no one would be reporting. I know Lissy is providing data for the project, and Jesse helped with the programming. Everyone, I'm fucking, wants to overthrow the government. Well, Hithliday, why do you think that is? A small grey woman in a grey suit reads off her PowerPoint slides at the front of the room, and I lean against the wall and back, scanning the crowd for Jesse. He's sitting in the second-to-last row, the strands of silver in his dark brown hair showing dramatically in the liquid crystal glow of his laptop. His face and lips look blue as a drowning man's. I like to watch him like this, when he doesn't know I'm looking. When he knows he's been watched. When he's teaching or lecturing, he becomes brilliant, sparkling, animated. His dark eyes and his smile widen, light up. His gentle laugh drags parentheses around the corners of his mouth. But when he's alone, when he thinks no one is watching, he shrinks into himself. The laugh lines settle. He looks lost, like a book that someone has misplaced. At the end of the lecture, he snaps his laptop shut, slings his bag over his shoulder. He catches sight of me on the way to the exit. He smiles too widely, looking exhausted. You weren't expecting me, I say. I know. No, it's fine. He licks his lips, which still look dry and blue. Did you like the talk? Sure. 
I lie. He turns abruptly and strides out of the lecture hall. I follow down the glossy corridor, out into the parking lot, where the mist rolls in from the river, smelling of rot. Jesse stops, leans against the wall of the auditorium, and his hair catches on the rough brick. He grabs me around the waist and drags me in for a kiss. Nine people contributed material to the Nemesine project, he told me, leaning against the pillows. The marks of my teeth were pale and raised along his shoulders. Four of them are anonymous. Five of them are missing. He clings to me like a drowning man, fingers digging into my back, bruising, his mouth opening beneath mine as though I could give him breath. He tastes like mint chewing gum and cigarette smoke. He winces when my tongue brushes against his teeth, but when I start to pull back, he whispers, Don't. He kicked a stack of books off the side of the bed, yanking off his jacket and tie, and he told me to fuck him. I took the harness and the strap on from the nightstand. He spread out on the bed, watching impatiently over his shoulder as I adjusted the buckles and straps around my thighs. The headlights from a car across the street slipped through the slats and the window blinds, caught his eyes, flattened them to smooth discs of gold. I weave my fingers through his and he grunts in pain. Jesse, I pull back. His sleeve cuffs gap above the buttons and I can see the shining red marks on his wrists, marks my hands could never have left. The neck of his undershirt is slipped down, damp with mist and sweat, and bruises show under his skin, black and yellow and blue. Don't worry about it, he says. Please, just stay with me. We fucked. And even though I was sober, it was the disjointed, disappointing sex of people who are drunk and angry and afraid. We take the train to his townhouse on the east side of the city. The streetlights around us glare like a hangover. Alone in the second-to-last compartment, he leans against my back, his cheek against my shoulder blade, his arms tight around my waist. The dean wants to see me tomorrow, he murmurs. I turn my head, looking for our reflection in the train window, but it's too dark inside, too bright out. Afterward, he asked me to hold him. He curled around me, his head resting in the crook between my bicep and my breast, his arm around my hips. He didn't say my name again. After a few minutes, his breathing settled. I kissed his cheek and tasted salt. This city burns so often that every fire has a name. Ships burning, churches burning, schools and factories and luxury hotels. The SS Virgil fire, the St John's fire. On a windy day, you can still smell the smoke rising from St John's preparatory. And when you aim the camera of your phone down at the sidewalk in front of the west gate, down at the cracked cement with its tarry traces of chewing gum and bird shit, you can still see the outline of Mark LaBelle's blood, the smooth puddle that it left as he died on a cold Sunday afternoon in April, beaten to death by riot officers. The stain that was still there the next morning, when the body was packed away in a city morgue and the police surveillance video had disappeared. Gone, as they say, without a trace. 
except for this palimpsested slab of sidewalk, which someone snapped on their phone, which someone else uploaded to the Nemesine project, which now trickles through this elegant little app to the eyes of anyone who stands here beneath the wrought iron gate. Your own private haunting in the palm of your hands. There are dozens of places like this throughout the city, thanks to Lissy and Jesse and all the rest of them. Haunted places. Revolutions are made out of hauntings, out of missing bodies and ghosts. Did you know that? I can assure you that the government does. Remedios and Gavin live above their gallery on Elliott Street, which has burned so many times that the new houses are all built out of concrete. Every surface north of 23rd is brightly painted. Flag murals, forest scenes, mountain silhouettes, massive bare-breasted women with galaxies in their eyes. Walking up the sidewalks, listening to the cold reverberating echo of your footsteps, you get the feeling that this part of the city has transcended the organic. At least until you see the fast food wrappers caught in the grates of the pristine concrete sewers. Everything, even the wrappers, smells like stone and diesel. Gavin is a sculptor, and he doesn't mind this sort of thing. Remedios, though, rebels. Their backyard is full of tomatoes and bright yellow-flowered squash and two fat hens cluck in the chicken coop beside the rusted bike rack. The back stairs take you either into the gallery, through the second floor, or up to their apartment on the third. The gallery is always unlocked. I glance inside just long enough to see that Remedios's brutal exhibition is still on display, wall after wall of bare torsos with unspeakable scars. The grey, wine-stained carpet smells like dust, and there are fat black flies on the window sills. A stray exhibition programme flutters in the box by the fire escape, the title in red lowercase sans serif. These are not the bodies we were born in. I let the door swing shut. Upstairs in the kitchen, Remedios is standing barefoot at the sink, washing cherry tomatoes and crying. You weren't expecting to see me, I'd said, because none of them ever are. No, he said, it's fine. Hithliday! She drops the bowl into the sink where it spins, clattering, spilling mottled red and yellow tomatoes across the grey ceramic. She flings her arms around my neck, stands on tiptoe, presses her flat chest against mine. Her hair is dark blue and shaved close to her head, and it smells like the gallery, like dry skin and abandonment. Please, just stay with me. She pulls me towards her on the bed, which is a low double mattress in the front room, covered in shawls and old saris and stuffed animals. Her fingers are already undoing the buttons on my shirt. Shouldn't we wait for Gavin? I ask, but she makes a sick squeaking sound. He isn't here, she says. What do you mean? He's gone, Hithliday. She tugs at my sleeves, and I ease myself down beside her on the mattress. What do you mean? She shakes her head, falls silent. I kiss her forehead, and she rolls me over, pushes me back against the pillows with the dead weight of her body. Four of them were anonymous, Jessie told me. Five of them are missing. Afterward, she curls up with her back against my stomach, a little spoon, or a snail in its shell. It feels strange not to have Gavin's arms crossing mine above her small body, Gavin's heady juniper smell in my nostrils. Remedios's breathing slows, 
pitches then steadies, like a ship breaking into deep water. We were marching up tribunal, she says. There was a gathering at the west gate. He thought we should be there, say a few words. The police arrived, and we were separated. Somewhere in the neighbourhood, a siren begins to wail. I kiss the back of her neck, and she looks over her shoulder. He's dead, isn't he? Everyone I'm fucking is trying to overthrow the government. Well, Hithliday, why do you think that is? I kiss her nose, her eyelids. I don't know, I lie. Hithliday. Lissy crouches over me. Her fingers wind around the back of my neck, giving my hair a sharp tug. In all seriousness, why do all your lovers want to overthrow the government? Guess I have a thing for rebels. Seriously? Mm Mm-hmm, I say. Her face is unreadable. I close my eyes, lean back into her grip. You're all so electric and so secretive. Meetings in dark alleys and warehouses, throwing bricks through Senate windows. It's so sexy. And don't get me started on the posters and the pamphlets and those long, lonely nights with a busted stapler in the back of the copy shop. She cuts me off with a kiss, dragging my head up to hers. Her mouth tastes like orange juice and almond chapstick. Her lips bruisingly firm, her teeth sharp. Just for once, she whispers, I wish you would think. Think. As though I weren't always thinking. Too much for my own good. Thinking of her body, the scars I can see and the ones I can't, the hip bones that jut prominently against my hands where they were once buried in flesh, thinking of the marks shining on Jessie's wrists and chest, of Remedios crying at her kitchen sink, thinking about protesters and fire hoses, pepper spray, gunshots, thinking of the history of the city, this apartment building and the fire that gutted it, thinking of being gutted being burned. All right, Lissy, I rub my eyelids, smudging what's left of yesterday's liner. Everyone I'm fucking realises that this country is going to shit, and unlike me, they have the courage and integrity to do something about it. Fear? She doesn't answer. I open my eyes. A flood of sunlight pours through the windows, sharp with afternoon. The living room is empty. When I look towards Ninth and Tribunal, I see that the crowd of protesters has disappeared, leaving a single piece of wet poster board in their wake. Hithliday. I suppose you caught the reference. A traveller in no place, a stranger in nowhere. My mother kicked me out when I was 15, and ever since my only reliable roof has been the sky, the city of kites and crows. It doesn't burn as easily as the city of flesh and blood, I'll give you that. And there have been friends' couches, lovers' bedrooms, roosts for a night or for a season. I have this image of myself flying across the city, from nest to nest, like something from a children's story. Where do the birds go during revolution? I read somewhere that every pigeon in Paris flew away during the summer of 1793. It was so hot, and every street in the city stank of blood. I have no idea if any of that was true. I have this recurring dream of a guillotine blade falling, the thud of it scattering crows like a spray of embers from a collapsing roof. 
they don't settle again. Whatever died wasn't to their taste. The fire at St John's Preparatory School began because a little girl struck a match into a bird's nest outside her dormitory window. Little girls are cruel, crueler far than ravens or guillotine blades, and flames in a wooden building travel faster than cruelty. Within seven minutes, everyone who was going to make it out alive had already left the building. They stood on 23rd Street, clutching their books, their dolls. Everyone else died. And some who got out died too, later on, from the smoke. I tell the story to Lissy, and she frowns. It is a story about all the things she loves. A story about home, about violence and brutality and revenge, about innocent bystanders. But it is not a story about justice. Only ghost stories are about justice, I say. And she shakes her head. How can you, of all people, believe in ghosts? When I return to the gallery, there are flies everywhere. Where did the bruises come from? I asked Jessie. But they weren't just bruises, not merely bruises, although the purple stain on his chest showed the treads of a military boot. The white and red marks on his arms, the stiffness in his fingers came from being cuffed, being tied, and tightly. I knew the signs. Remedios and I go into the bedroom and fuck and don't say a word about Gavin. She moves so stiffly that I'm afraid I've hurt her. But when I slow down, she twines her legs around me and hisses in my ear, Don't stop! We fall asleep afterward, sore and exhausted. Later still, I wake alone to the buzzing of the flies. The dean wants to see me tomorrow, he'd said, resting his cheek against my shoulder blade, and I couldn't see our reflection in the window. And although it's the last thing on earth that I want to do, Although I can already smell the sour stink in the dusty carpet, I go down to the gallery, down to the first floor, where the flies are the thickest, down to the back room. Jesse's things are scattered across the bedroom floor, his books cracked along the spine, his ties and jackets and dress shirts torn from their hangers and crumpled, dirtied with the muddy prints of boots, the contents of the nightstand small and obscene in the light of day. I see the folding chair first, collapsed in the centre of the room beneath the light fixture. And she sways at the end of something that shows bright orange against her blue hair. An electric cord. She's been here for a while now. Her limbs have gone stiff, her tongue black against her pale chin. I stand on the chair to cut her down. When she lands in my arms, I lose my balance, fall to the floor with a solid, bruising On the train back to Ninth Street, the woman in the seat across from me is reading something on her tablet. She looks up at me suddenly. Without saying a word, she cries and she cries and cries. None of us had the body we were born in. Life leaves its traces its teeth marks on our throats, its map across our thighs and in our fingertips, its footprints on our chests. The body that I was born in didn't have breasts, didn't have hips, and I didn't know I had a cunt until I was nine years old. Love leaves its traces on us, and hate. 
I fill the antique tub in Lissy's bathroom until the frigid water flows over the edge, splashing across the dark green tile floor. I close my eyes, plug my nose, plunge to the bottom. Even underwater, I smell the burning. I've stopped binding recently, stood in front of the mirror on the back of the bathroom door and cupped my breasts the way I used to cup Lissy's. It felt alien. Not wrong, just not mine. I think of Lissy's tattoo, the marks on Jessie's wrists and neck and chest. I think of the slight weight of Remedios dangling from the electric cord noose. And I think damage is what teaches us to inhabit our bodies. And everyone I love has learned that long before me. At last I come up for air, and Lissy is waiting for me, sitting on the edge of the tub in her flannel robe. What's wrong, Hithliday? she asks. But nothing's wrong. I'm unscathed. It's my gift, I say softly. My own special talent. I don't follow the crowd, and I never have. I don't get caught up in things. The world is on fire. And I don't even feel the heat. I reach for her. And she isn't there. I get out of the tub, wrap a fraying towel around my waist, go to the hallway. The door to her room is on the right. I put my fingertips on the handle, hoping it will be locked. But it isn't. It swings soundlessly open. The smell of smoke and scorched hair and wet carbon rushes out. Inside... Everything is covered in a layer of dust. The City of Kites and Crows is copyright Megan Arkenberg, 2016, and was originally published in Kaleidotrope. This recording is a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can share it with anyone you'd like, but please don't change or sell it. Our theme is Aurora Borealis by Bird Creek, available through the Google Audio Library. You can support Glittership by checking out our Patreon at patreon.com slash kefi, subscribing to our feed, or by leaving reviews on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with Never Alone, Never Unarmed, an original story by Bobby Sun.